Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest name is John Carvalho. John is the founder of Stone Oak Capital, which is an M&A investment banking firm. He's out of Canada. He's also the co-founder of Divestopedia, which is an amazing online resource website for everything to do with buying, selling a business, exit planning, value building. And John has done a great job aggregating information in Divestopedia, applying it to his clients at Stone Oak Capital. So John and I have a great conversation because of our new foreign partnership with Divestopedia and having this podcast on their site. But we also wanted to bring you, the listeners, all of the information that we've been gathering on how to go about doing this as a business owner. So John and I talk about how to structure your deals, who to find as a likely buyer, how to architect the financing behind that, and then how to reverse back into it. And John talks about one of his clients where they're working on a thousand day plan and how they're making a better business by going about doing things correctly to eventually sell. And even if they don't, they'll have one really, really healthy business because of their efforts. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode because John and I cover a lot of different topics from both of our experience with working with our clients and his vast knowledge from Divestopedia. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with John. John, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited for our, our call today because we uh, got in touch because you guys have a really cool website and a lot of good resources that uh, our listeners probably have come across. So I'm excited to kind of go through your experience and some of the, the things that you see in the M&A industry and the trends that are going out there. So for our listeners sake, can you kind of just go back and tell us a little bit about how you got into the whole mergers and acquisition space? Sure. Yeah, I can definitely do that. So, you know, I guess it was 15 years ago where I was doing you know, accounting and auditing. I became a, a CPA when I first came out of university and, you know, quickly after auditing and doing, you know, verification on, on different clients' books, I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. And really, I was interested in, in business valuations and, and corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions. So quickly changed gears and went uh, over to a large big four accounting firm with their corporate finance group and worked there for about eight years. And sure, after those eight years, I learned a lot and had made a, a number of great contacts with colleagues and prospective clients and, and felt that my skills were at a point where I could I could just go on my own and, and start my own firm. So I did that with Stono Capital and, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now and uh, keep on doing it and helping business owners kind of monetize their life work is, is how I view view the work that I do. Yeah. And it, I mean, that right there is a, it's a pretty solid mission and I obviously love it. You know, you've got a platform that you're utilizing that is outside of Stono Capital called Divestopedia. So can you just give us like a little rundown on where did that come from? Where did the baby and the brain or the idea come from and how did you execute and kind of what's the mission? Yeah. So I guess maybe like most things in life, we kind of, kind of just, I got lucky and fell into it a little bit. So I was, I was working away helping business owners sell their business. And a lot of times I'd kind of, you know, come up with the business owners that just didn't know what they didn't know when it came to this topic. 
And I felt like there needed to be a lot more information out there in, in the public to help these entrepreneurs, again, kind of monetize their life work. So did some research, looked online, didn't really see much that, that I thought was high enough quality in terms of this topic. So I started writing a few blogs around topics in areas in selling a business that I thought were important. And as luck would have it, I ran into an individual, his name's Corey Jansen. He was the founder of Investopedia, which is a massive financial education website. You know, kind of told him that I was writing blogs around selling a business. And, you know, the luck of the story was that he just sold his business, Investopedia. So he thought that the topic area was really interesting. And away we went from there being partners on creating Divestopedia, which is an educational platform um, to, to provide business owners and entrepreneurs with information that's needed for everything from valuing a business to maximizing value to actually selling a business in the process that's involved in that. So, you know, kind of a long story there, but, you know, really it was it was lucky that I, I came across a guy that had the capacity and technological kind of wherewithal and, and knowledge to help me share all of the ideas and topics that are in my head around middle market M&A to a, a wider audience. And I think it's absolutely amazing what you're doing because, I mean, that, and that's how you and I ended up connecting. And when I was researching or Googling and just trying to find information about this topic, you know, when we sold our business, that was probably, so it was probably about late 2013, early 2014, when I was just scouring the internet for information and you trying to find like holistic just resources that's not just one blog about a specific trust and you have no idea how to put that in a context. So I think you guys are filling a really, really needed void and the information that you guys are accumulating is fantastic. I'm really, really excited for some of the stuff that we've got going on. So, yeah, as we kind of shift gears, I want to, you know, for our listeners, I think there's a lot of the stuff that's going on out there about like, where do you turn? You know, there's all these things that, like you said, the seller doesn't necessarily know what they don't know. So that's what I kind of want to dive into going, you know, with your decades of experience in this space, what are some of the common things that you see that pop up over and over that are the most unknown from the sellers? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And, and to be frank, I mean, I'm still learning myself each and every day as I get into a new deal. And as you can imagine, I think about this loss. So <laughs> it kind of consumes my thoughts, right? But one of the things that I find over and over again from business owners is just valuation, like the starting point on what a realistic valuation is. I think that's always something that business owners don't think about often enough. And I think that they get it wrong at the end of the day. I think most business owners have like a, an idea and usually it's either way wrong or it's very close to accurate. But why do you think that is the case that they don't know? And then like, what are the things that they have wrong usually? It's a complex area, right? They might have an, a general idea of ranges of where their business might end up on valuation. But until you talk to a professional, you don't know for sure, right? Mm -hmm. So they might be floating with this idea that's totally unrealistic, or they might have an idea that's kind of reasonable, but you never really know until you, you want to sell your business. So having that information early, I think, is important. A couple of areas where I think they go wrong is really having a, a realistic expectation of what an exit looks like. You know, I talk to business owners and they think, ah, when I want to sell this massive competitor that's overseas or in a different country is going to come up and I'm such a great company that they're just going to, you know, write a massive check for me. <laughs> and unless you have a proprietary product 
or you have like double or triple digit growth, that's not the most likely exit for you, right? So you have to look at what is a realistic exit option because a lot of times that drives valuations. Mm-hmm. So if your management team is the most likely exit, they're likely not going to have a massive bank account to write a huge check for a business owner that's exiting. And on top of that, they're usually going to want to pay you out over a certain amount of time. So I think you know a couple of places where business owners fall down on valuation is, again, just not knowing what's realistic in terms of a range, and then also not knowing what's realistic in terms of the actual buyer that might be most likely to come to the table in a transaction. I think you're spot on because it's just all the unknowns of that whole situation. So when you are talking to business owners and they're kind of the deer in the headlights on these subjects, what is the process that you see that's the most, like the ones that are that successfully go through that process, what are the, some of the things that they do? Yeah, so starting early is one for sure. And when I say start early, it's like, you know, if you want to exit, you got to pick kind of a time frame that's three years out and then work backwards from there. That That's really been where I have seen the most success is where guys say, hey, listen, I'm not going to be in this business forever. So I need to start thinking about it now. And I need to have enough time that if the valuation isn't where I need it to be, I can actually pull a couple of levers to increase value. I can also have a lot of time to find that ideal buyer. I can have enough time to switch gears if I need to. So starting early, I would say is it's kind of a cliche, right? You got to start your exit planning early, but it really is I think the number one factor that, um, you know, will translate into the most successful exits that I've seen. Mm -hmm. You you hit on two things that I really, really liked, which is once you, the benefits of finding out early is you actually understand your numbers and like can actually work towards a specific exit. What is it like for you? And I don't know what the percentages of the owners that want to sell, like when they see the numbers and where they're at, like just the distraught look on their face of, okay, now what? <laughs> I don't know if it's distraught. Like sometimes guys just, you know, the, the good guys just say, okay, it is what it is right now. This is where I would like it to be. Now, what do I need to put in place to get there? Right. I mean, that's like any planning. I mean, that's planning 101, right? right yep. Where do you want to be? And then work backwards from that point to say, okay, what do I need to put in place to get there? Some guys truthfully might not believe what I have to say, right? Maybe they they go get a second opinion and think that someone else might tell them what they want to hear. But really, like, I'm not in the business of telling people what they want to hear. I'm in the business of being realistic on what exit options are and what valuations are. So I come across pretty blunt sometimes. And I think clients either really like that or they really don't like it. Come down Um, to passive aggressive Minnesota, man. (laughs) You'll get a lot. Hey, just call what it is. Just tell me, man, I I can deal with that faster than anything else. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't help anybody to give somebody an expectation that that they can't or I can't achieve. So Mm -hmm. again, with the, the benefit of having more time, if it's a number you don't like, let's put a plan in place and let's figure out how you get there. So really time gives everybody a lot of power to be able to achieve what they need to. So as far as the two different categories, like the, you know, the valuation and the numbers and then the exit options, you know, what are the most common exit options that you see? And I think that there's a range that a lot of people don't know about. I just got off one of my calls with Richard Wilson, from, you know, which family office people don't know about that. So again, when you're sitting down with sellers, what is it that they're looking for? And then how do you match up the exit option with what they're trying to do? Is there kind of what do you see on that front? Yeah. So I try to understand what the objectives of the owner are. 
and usually it comes down to, you know, do you want to get out entirely or do you still want to stay involved? So you want to get out entirely. You're trying to find some sort of strategic buyer. And even when I talk about strategic buyers, I mean, there's kind of the local or regional competitor that's looking for a return on their investment, looking for a business that they can add on and and create some synergies with. Or there's kind of the multinational large conglomerate that's willing to pay a little bit more because you have a product that they can really plug into their operations and just take it from a local regional company to something that's more global, right? And that doesn't happen. That's very rare for a middle market business to have that type of interest. So that's one exit idea or something that you have to consider depending on the objective if the owner really wants to pull out and not have any involvement going forward. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there's family offices and private equity firms for those business owners that are really just kind of looking for some sort of capital partner to bring to the table, right? That's a different breed of business owner altogether. So I guess just as a framework, I really try to understand what the objectives of the business owner are and try to see what's realistic based on their business characteristics to see if those objectives are reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they, not, they aren't, let's go back to the drawing board and let's figure out, maybe you got to change your objectives. And if you don't want to change your objectives, maybe you have to change your business, right? And again, the more time you have, the better the ability that you can actually transform that to to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the objectives that you see that the owners are trying to accomplish? You know, some guys just want the biggest check that they can get. And that's totally understandable, right? They want to take this e-liquid assets and turn it into cash. And I'm all for that. Like, that's one of my objectives, too, is to help an owner kind of maximize the dollar amount that they walk away with. So other objectives, you know, there could be family situations. So maybe they want to get their children involved in the family and give them some ownership and help them really profit from the upside. In some cases, people want to make sure that their legacy is preserved. Other guys want their management team to be intact and to have some ownership going forward. So a ton of different objectives. Step one is determining what those objectives are. And a lot of times business owners haven't thought about them, Mm -hmm. but it's really not that difficult to sit back for an afternoon and jot down on a piece of paper. What would you like to see and what's important to you when you sell your business or exit your business? Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the biggest personal experiences when when we sold our business is the unintended consequences of not knowing your objectives. (laughs) I mean, I think I've mentioned to you, but like, you know, when you sell to a strategic competitor, you you kind of do a sweep with a lot of the employees and stuff like that, which sacrifices some culture and the legacy of your employees and the relationships. So there's, how do you match up the owner's objectives with the exit options? Is there like, that's a bigger Rubik's cube of a lot of those objectives you talk about. Like, how do you walk the owner through the different variations and how the different things affect what they're looking for? Yeah. And then it comes back to what I mentioned earlier, like there either is a fit. So, you know, if your objective is to Make sure that your employees are taken care of and you don't want anybody to get cut. Then selling to a strategic where some of those employees might become redundant is might not be the best exit option. Right. So it's just kind of saying, okay, so under with a strategic buyer, these are what they're looking for. Let's sit down. Let's really, you know, map out what your objectives are and let's just do a matching game. Like are your objectives consistent Mm -hmm. with what's really going to happen if we pick this kind of exit transfer channel 
And if it's not, let's revisit either the exit channel or let's revisit the objectives. I'm sure you've experienced <laughs> like, I want all my money right now and I want to sell it to my managers. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, or I want to make sure that I maximize my dollar amount by selling to a competitor and make sure no one gets cut. It's just like, okay, well, there's, <laughs> there's give and takes. And, you know, I think everybody wants to make the most amount of money, but then you start like, I don't know. It's probably up to every owner, like how you assess how much those objectives you're willing to sacrifice monetarily in order to make sure that they're accomplished. Yeah, I think you're right. There definitely has to be some trade-off, right? And again, I go back to either rethink the objectives or rethink the plan or rethink the exit option, one of those three. And when you do that, that's really what improves the success rate and success factors of the ultimate exit, right? And then switching to or back to the valuation what are the common forms of valuations that you see? How do you go about applying that? Because I think the softwares that are popping up these days that can value them, you've got a lot of different methods. What is a nice rule of thumb that you can share with us? Okay, I can't share a rule of thumb because there is no rule of thumb. <laughs> Anybody that says there is, is just not understanding valuation very well. But one valuation that I've kind of landed on that I really like is, and it goes back to these exit options, right? So really understanding what exit option is most likely. And then from a buyer's perspective, how would a buyer actually facilitate that transaction, right? So a buyer is going to have to get financing. A buyer is going to be looking for a certain rate of return. And different buyers look for different rates of return. So if you understand what a deal structure looks like, and you also understand who the likely buyer is and the amount of financing that they can get, either through their own equity or third-party financing like a bank, then you can kind of work backwards to say at a different valuation level, the equity that that buyer have to put into the deal, does that give them an adequate return on capital? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's kind of like a leverage buyout analysis, you know, if we're talking valuation methodologies, but that's one that I've landed on that I think I like the best just because it's a real world. It analyzes what's happening in the marketplace around the ability to get financing for a particular deal. And on top of that, it also really illustrates how a deal is going to be structured for a business owner. Whereas a lot of traditional valuations will just give you a number and, and a business owner thinks that's all cash. You know, the, the value of your business is 10 million bucks. Well, great. I sell it tomorrow. I'm going to get a $10 million check and, you know, I'm going to let that enough for me. Right. But really it's not a $10 million check in most cases. It's like 5 million in cash certain amount in vendor take back. Maybe there's an earnout tied to that. So giving a business owner an idea of not only valuation, but also deal structure is something that I feel is missing in the valuation kind of community. And then I'm going to actually add 100% agree with what, everything you just said. And then you go one step further, which is how that deal structure puts net proceeds into your pocket, because that is actually what matters. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like the tax guys are going to take their cut too, right? So I'm beating a dead horse here with the planning, but that's where the planning comes into play, right? Get tax planning involved too. So now you not only know the valuation, but you also know the deal structure. And if you have an efficient tax structure, you know exactly how much cash you're going to walk away with after you pay tax. Mm -hmm. So all of that combined, the owner doesn't care about valuation. They care about exactly what you said. How much money is in their pocket after they sell their business? And in what time frame and over how long? Or in, yeah. what, in what kind of risk? Because if you're going to yeah. do an earnout in an industry that's selling floppy disks, it might not be a solid idea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, 100%. So I'm curious because I, I love how you articulated that whole situation. 
Do you have, with all the years of experience, like one really cool structure or way that you reversed into that you can kind of walk through like start to finish of how you took someone's objectives, found kind of the exit option and like what kind of structure and financing you put behind it? I know that's a lot and then we don't have to go into like some crazy details, but I'm just kind of thinking even if you don't know names or anything like that, just kind of like a way that you would walk us through how that would look. Yeah. So I'm actually working with a business right now as we speak. You know, I can't take credit for the plan that we've called it, but we've called it the thousand day plan. And I guess the reason we called it that is because a three-year plan just seemed like it was too far out, right? Too nebulous. We called <laughs> it a thousand-day day plan. <laughs> yeah, so we can actually count down the days, right? And it really started with looking at the market and saying, when do we think the market is going to be at a peak for the sale of this business in this particular industry that they're in? So we picked that date, and now we work backwards, put in place all of the things that we need to do to get ready for that ultimate exit. And we initially thought one exit option was most realistic, which was kind of a sale to a strategic buyer. But putting the plan in place and the forecast, we actually think that we might be able to get to a specific size where another exit option is more lucrative and really there's appetite for it. So even with my experience, my knowledge of the industry and exit options, Still, the conversations with others within the industry helped us all realize that there was another better exit option that can create more value for this business owner. How cool. Sorry to interrupt, but I like what I love about just even that specific part of the process is your everything over the next thousand days is going to be different depending on the different ways that you're marching, depending on the people you hire, the systems and softwares you put into place and the compensation structures, all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And the other beautiful thing about it is at the end of the thousand days, if it doesn't happen, this business and this client that I'm working with is a hundred times better business than it would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've also exactly like you said, we filled in the gaps where we needed to from an organizational perspective, from an outside consultant perspective. We're looking at putting an independent board of directors in place. So there's kind of that third party oversight and mentorship for the business owner. So, you know, it just gives you such a laser focus on building a great business and creating value. And again, if it happens, this business owner is going to hit it out of the park. And if it doesn't happen, he's still going to have a great business that, you know, is miles ahead of where it is today. Yeah. Like what's the worst case scenario? Your EBITDA is 10 times more than it was before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like, oh, darn, I don't work as much and I'm making 10 times more money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there is no negatives from putting a plan like this in place. I'm just curious because, you know, my firm, we focus on the, the value building system from John Warlow. There's a million different ways you can call it, but it's the value drivers. And there's all those things that you talked about. Um, some of them get really technical. Some of them are more strategic. But have you noticed that when people are looking like that, you have like a foot in the short term cash flow, but then you also have a foot in the multiplier of your EBITDA. So you can sacrifice some cash flow today because you understand what you're going to get out of it. How do you have those conversations? What are some of the cool examples you might have seen? Yeah, I think that's a good way to paraphrase it in terms of value creation. Like you have to spend some money today to create value tomorrow, right? And there might be a little bit of an impact on cash flow and EBITDA in the short term, but but you see what the long-term goal is and what the long-term objective is. And I think prospective buyers can wrap their head around that too, right? They recognize that you have to make investment in the business to get it to another level. Well, and you know, if a prospective buyer's got to invest a bunch of money into the business right away anyways, they're going to knock off the price of your 
of the acquisition anyway. So, I mean, you're going to end up paying for it regardless. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there for sure. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. So after you pick, you know, a couple of likely potential buyers, you put in the value creation of the plan in place of all the technical stuff that's got to get done. Let's kind of dive into the financing a little bit. You know, we haven't really touched on that too much in the show. I think there's a lot of perceptions that you got bank financing, seller financing, all these different types. What kind of creative financing options do you have that are available and how does that affect getting the deal done? I guess doing a lot of middle market deals, I kind of see that there is a need for buyers to have great advisors just as much as there is a need for the sellers to have great advisors. And, you know, a lot of blame gets put on the sellers when deals don't close. I'm sure you've heard the daunting statistics of one in 10 deals actually gets consummated or gets completed. But some of that responsibility has to fall on the buyers too, where they just don't know how to structure a deal. They don't know how to find the sources of capital. They don't know how to put a letter of intent together to make an offer. So there's so many sources of capital now out there. There's the typical senior debt. There's the mezzanine capital or or kind of that middle layer of capital. There's third-party equity groups. There's the vendor financing, like you said, or the some sort of contingency payment, like an earnout. I can't really specifically say one that's more creative or unique than others, but there are just so many ways to find money. And it really is just, you know, how risky is that money? And that's what it comes down to is if it's backed by a lot of of assets and security, it's not so risky. If it's more based on something that's future and a little bit more nebulous, then, you know, that's definitely risky and it deserves a higher rate of return. So I I think just understanding the layers of capital and where to search for those can help get more deals done and help buyers kind of execute more deals. Well, and getting the buyers and the sellers on the same page too, because, you know, like I think the things that I've seen is that there's just this huge either lack of awareness or just misperception that you either get a check because the buyer's got all the cash and is just going to write the check or the bank's going to finance it or the complete opposite of the spectrum that the sellers just got to like take a long drawn out payment. But I think that all these things that you just referred to, there's so many ways to get the deal done that you can structure a lot of those different things together and combine them based on different terms and conditions that I think if you have two people the buyer and the seller that are actually kind of on the same page of trying to get the deal done, you can find a way to reverse back into that financial engineering to make sure that the net proceeds, which is what the seller cares about, and that the deal terms for the buyer are actually in line if you've got the right people at the table, I think. Yeah, I I say this as a pretty rational guy. I think of myself as, uh, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan or not, but I think of myself as like a Spock, right? (laughs) Like uh, everything should be very logical for me. and, And it comes down from a buyer's perspective to return on equity. So if I'm writing a $10 million check and I think the risk of the business is, you know, I should be earning a 25% return, 
then the metrics have to weigh that out, right? And from a buyer, you either have to tell me why you think a 25% return is maybe too high for the business or how you think that a buyer can achieve those returns. So there's that balance there of, of return on equity. Do you find it hard to get sellers to think in the buyer's perspective? You know, again, going back to that leverage buyout analysis, I think the way that it's presented where it's, you know, this is the value, this is what your deal looks like, this is the equity check that a buyer is going to write based on a forecast that you've given me, business owner, Mm -hmm. this is their return. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's math. I'm not inventing any sort of new crazy math here. This is what the numbers say. So prove to me where I'm wrong, because I know that this is a likely deal structure that we can get in the market. Yeah, it is interesting because even if you're in the middle market where tens of millions of dollars, I don't, a lot of business owners look at the cash flow and the distributions, but like never looking at their whole business as one asset that should provide a return on equity, (laughs) you know, and that's the challenge where all of a sudden instead of 120K plus 200 distributions, it's no, it's like literally how much is your rate of return (laughs) total? Yeah, exactly. And I've thought a lot about this. And I think business owners kind of look at the perks of ownership and tie that all into lifestyle. And they can kind of set their own hours. Maybe they're tying in their owner salaries into their return on equity, which I think are two separate things, maybe a, a conversation for another time. But you're right. Nobody sit down and does that math. Like what kind of return on equity am I earning as a business owner? And, you know, one guy that I really like who talks extensively about this is Rob Slee, where he says that 90% of businesses out there in the middle market are not earning sufficient return on equity to compensate the risk that these business owners are taking (laughs) off. So I agree. That stat, I have have not seen it, but I can only imagine it's got to be pretty dang close. Yeah. You know, you think of the risk of a business and especially a business kind of sub, call it $25 million in revenue. There's a ton of competition out there. A lot of things can happen in terms of financing and loss of customers and loss of employees. Like you got to be thinking that on your equity, you want to be earning at least a 25% return. But a lot of guys, A, aren't thinking like that and B, aren't even close to earning that type of return in their business. Yeah, I would agree with that because I mean, I don't even remember like who in our advisor or expertise circle of influence would have been able to provide us with that kind of information. Because, I mean, it was just a challenge making sure all of the payables were GL-coded correctly, let alone <laughs> could having someone come in and showing us that kind of information. Because when someone's looking at a house, to buy a house, they go on Zillow or any kind of real estate website where you just you, you look at all the deals and you get to start to understand what the market bears. Is to then do the same thing in your world is go look at all these companies and look at what they're asking for, the pre-tax and the multiple, and then go, would you want to buy that? <laughs> And actually put the buyer's hat on and go, holy cow, now you're looking at it like an asset instead of like, oh, I don't want to go weld all day long. I want to actually have a piece of asset that kicks out cash. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And one thing I think that's very time specific right now is the return that people are looking for on their capital is so low. It really is an amazing time to sell a business because where I perceive the risk on equity of these smaller businesses to be, you know, 25% plus 
there's just so much capital looking for a place to earn a return that a lot of buyers are looking at return on equity that are, are lower. And that translates to higher multiples on business valuations. So if timing the market is something that business owners really think about, which I think it should be, now is an amazing time to get your business in order to hit the market. That's interesting that you said that because, yeah, I mean, I agree with that because I mean, there's everybody, every investment banker, business broker I've talked to said there's, you know, what, five to 10 times buyers to every seller because they can't find something that's healthy enough that they want. Yeah. And that's why, unfortunately, a terrible business will never sell. Well, I can't say we'll never sell it. Anything will sell at the right price. But, you know, it may be still difficult to sell a business that doesn't have really high quality earnings or high quality characteristics in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But a business that is kind of above average will sell at a significant premium just because there is that inequality between the number of buyers versus the number of sellers, especially high quality sellers. Yeah, yeah. So because we're kind of talking about some of the macro things right now, what are some of the common trends that you're seeing in the marketplace because of the exposure that you've got from information on Divestopedia and the deals that you're seeing? I mean, what are some of the key characteristics of trends that are popping up that you're seeing? A couple of trends that are interesting outside of just valuation multiples being at a level that, frankly, I can't understand. But another trend that I'm seeing a lot of is kind of a minority equity investment. So private equity firms are, you know, typically they always wanted a majority. They wanted to be able to control their investment. They want to be able to control the direction of their investment. But now we're seeing a lot more bigger firms, bigger private equity firms looking at minority investments, Hmm. which I think is actually what a private equity firm should be selling, right? They should be wanting to partner with business owners that still want to have control, Mm -hmm. that still want to be involved, that still want to take their business to another level. So I think there's probably more synergies and just more fit between the objectives of an owner that wants to grow the business versus a private equity that wants to make an investment. So the minority investments is kind of an interesting trend that I'm seeing more and more of here. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense both ways where like, obviously, if you're going to, if you're a PE firm, you want to go buy and make sure that you've got control over the asset that you're responsible for. But at the same time, why wouldn't you want to get a high rate of return and give some guidance and let someone else do all the work? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm sure they still have other mechanisms and other ways of controlling like board seats and, you know, maybe a different class of shares. But the minority interest is new. You know, I'd say probably over the last year and and more firms are definitely moving in that direction. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, how do the valuations, because usually the minority shares, that's an easy way to discount the value of the company and then gift it to kids or managers or something like that. How does that affect the valuations? You know, That's a good question. I haven't actually worked on a minority interest deal, but from a theoretical perspective, the minority interest discount is there, but I don't think it's there from a practical perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I think that these private equity firms are astute enough and have done enough deals that they're going to find other ways other than just pure share ownership where they can control the direction of the firm. I'm sure the shareholder agreement is going to have very specific bio clauses and and, uh, triggers there. So, you know, I don't think that the minority discount in the real world is actually something that happens in a deal. Yeah, because it's used for tax purposes (laughs) for the most part. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to go back because you you mentioned something about the multiples that you're just not, you know, you don't fully understand. Is that because the multiples are so low right now or is it like what was so high? So high. Like, yeah, I can't wrap my head around how high these valuation multiples are. What size companies and what size EBITDA are you referring to? I'm just kind of curious. 
I guess I talked to a lot of private equity firms through my relationship with Divestopedia there, but I don't even want to put valuation multiples out there, right. uh, <laughs> you know, in the public realm, because I think it gives owners unrealistic expectations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a speaker at a local event and then there was a panel of business owners that have sold and they were telling their stories <laughs> and yeah. There was two family transitions and two that have sold. And this one gentleman, awesome guy, sold his family business uh, like 17 years ago over a cocktail at a trade event. And he got 11 times. And he sits there and tells that in front of 250 current business owners. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it, again, I'm not putting those valuation multiples out there because I do think it's very company specific, right? As much as you kind of, you know, some people want to give that rule of thumb or paint an industry multiple on different industries. I'm not that guy, right? I look at a business as, as each individual business. And obviously, mm -hmm. you know, you want to look at what's happening in the marketplace. If they're one of my clients, I want to get them the highest value that I possibly think I can get. But I think what's happening is that the private equity firms, typically they'd always talk about return on their money of kind of that 25% as the hurdle. Now it's more like 16, 18%, mm -hmm. right? I got a question for you because, you know, and I'm just totally shooting from my own random thoughts and experience, but like, I like to follow money and then figure out where all the motivations come from. And think about these PE firms that are, they're borrowing money or taking money from big pension funds or big private investors that are also trying to hit a rate of return because interest rates are like nothing. So no yeah. one's getting the rate of return that they need. And so all these pensions are drying up. You just start to see all this. Are you seeing that because they're just trying to scramble to get the return for the people that they report to? I, mean, I agree. I have no idea what's going on on that, that front. Yeah, no, I agree with private equity firms. If you get somebody a 16% return <laughs> in this interest rate environment, like people are super happy about that, <laughs> no right? which they should be. Like that's an awesome return for people. But the thing that just doesn't click in my head is the, you know, and I guess because I've been involved with so many small businesses, clients, and also having an investment in small businesses, I just see the risk in the equity of these small businesses. And I don't think it's kind of that sub 25%. So you're putting money out there looking for that 16 to 18% return, but you're investing it in instruments that are really a 25% plus return. So that's where the disconnect is for me, right? I understand where the private equity firm, they need to place the money, they need to earn a return for their investors. But the assets that they're putting that money into, I think, at least in my perspective, are riskier than the return they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. there's a disconnect in what they perceive to the risk of the, what they're putting their funds in. I mean, to your point earlier, that if you specifically kind of figure out who you think your potential buyers might be, you can reverse back into there and hopefully calculate the value and get to the value that you want, regardless of some general number and multiplier. Yeah, exactly. And let's say you did have a company that had an incredible brand, right? It, this company sold a product. It was super successful. It had kind of a regional focus and a large multinational distributor is coming to buy you. They can take that brand and product and now put it through all of their distribution channels and multiply that company by X times, right? Mm -hmm. What's the valuation that one of those guys is willing to pay? And the cost of capital for one of those multinationals is more like kind of the 10 to 12%, right? So their return on equity is a lot lower. So taking all of those assumptions into this leveraged buyout analysis, you're going to get a much higher valuation because the cash flows are going to be higher from this business now, 
with all of the new distribution channels that you can send this product through. And their cost of capital is way lower. That's why it's not a one size fits all. You got you to gotta look at what's likely for the business in terms of potential buyers. And then how is that buyer going to view the transaction? And then you work backwards from there to figure out, okay, this is, you know, a price that I think I can negotiate to. Yeah. And it's just absolutely spot on advice to be able to reverse back into it. Cause like you said, then you've got a very specific target that you're going towards and it's laser focused. And if you got specific strategic buyers that you're trying to sell to and you're making yourself that much better, if that doesn't happen, then you've got the worldwide area of private equity or financial buyers that'll just take a healthy company and apply a really good multiplier to it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've thought about this value creation thing, thing lots and you know, it kind of comes down to a couple of areas. So the first one is just increasing cash flow. You increase cash flow, you're going to increase the value of your business, right? It's a simple concept. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of things that you can do operationally to increase your cash flow. And you just got to figure that out for each specific business on how to do that. The second thing is reducing risk. So if you can reduce even the perception of risk to be able to generate that cash flow, that's going to increase value. Again, that's more of an operational thing. But the third piece to increasing value, and this is where I come in, so I'm being a little biased here, but a great M&A advisor increases value from that time frame when you start to market the business to the time frame where you close a deal, right? Let's say that's a year period. That period is so important to maximizing value in terms of the preparation, the negotiation skills, the ability with your legal team to be able to really set terms that are maybe more favorable to the seller. So I think thinking about that just one year period where you're actually executing the sale, a ton of value can be driven in just that process. Yes, I think you checked all the boxes. One of the people on that panel was referring to, they said during one of their processes, because they're out buying companies, they said, we found that there was a humongous difference between good advisors and excellent advisors and the expertise that they bring. Yeah. And I'm still working to get to that excellent advisor role because I have a lot of people that I look up to and I respect that I feel are in that echelon. But really, it's just kind of a mastery of the craft, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of things that go into trying to get to that excellent advisor. I do have, you know, a number of thoughts on what differentiates a good advisor from an excellent advisor, but it takes time and experience, I think, to get there. All right. And you'll always tell on the battlefield, (laughs) you know, and so as the results usually speak for themselves. Yeah, 100%. And that's something that most business owners should look for, right? Like, go get those references. Go look at what the track record of the advisor is. What's their batting average? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the funny thing about batting average is that great advisors will typically pick the winners, right? They're not going to pick the losers. So their batting average is not only good because they're good, but also because the companies that they pick are good. Yeah, everybody wants to sell the house that's the million dollar house that's perfect and is super marketable. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. But I guess going back on that is typically great advisors that get those listings too, right? So looking at batting averages is important to see how many businesses does the M&A advisor actually work on and what's their close percentage? Well, and then also, you know, how do they apply all the things that you just talked about? How can they take the average and make it the great house or the great business that's really marketable? Because I think there's not as much work as a lot of people think. And they just, you know, being able to get the right guidance to be able to put it into place so that way they can execute like that is super important. Yeah. And there is a little bit of a different skill set, though, I think, Ryan, between the value creation piece where, you know, there's operational stuff, there's corporate structuring stuff. Like, I, I think that takes a team to really put that value creation in place. 
and it also takes a team to execute that sale. But I do think they're different skill sets, right? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. So what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? A lot of ways. I'm pretty accessible and pretty easy to find online. So if they want to get in touch with me through Divestopedia, it's a pretty simple email address, just john at divestopedia.com. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Well, I had a blast. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, appreciate it. Always like talking to you, Roman.